Hello and welcome back to the Chawton House podcast. I'm Lizzie Frisby and this is where you can keep updated on the former home of Edward Austin Knight, brother of Jane Austen in the little Hampshire village of Chawton. In this episode, we're going to hear from curator and collections manager Emma Yandel, who we spoke to once before, and deputy director Dr Kim Simpson about the current acquisitions held at Chawton House that you can go along and see during your next visit. We'll also hear about the amazing outcome of the Man Up Creative Writing Competition, which went global a little earlier this year. a little while everyone uh, but today I am joining Emma Yandel our curator and collections manager and Dr Kim Simpson the deputy director here at Chawton House how are you both today good thank you good good it's great to be here good and today we're going to be specifically talking about acquisitions at Chawton House that have come in uh, recently so Emma would you like to start and tell us about some of the newer acquisitions that Chawton House has brought in? Sure so um, I think one thing that um, people perhaps don't always consider when they look at our library collection is that it is constantly evolving. Um, We have a remit as sure listeners know to um, represent and promote the works written by women writers from around 1600 to 1830 And um, often we see that there are gaps in that collection that we're trying to sort of fulfill so we can do a better job for researchers coming here or or with our displays. Um, And then sometimes there are works that just appear out of the blue. Uh, Usually they come from family hands that we didn't know it would be possible for us to access. And then we're suddenly able to get them. So we have a policy that governs what is seen as a good acquisition to the collection and there are sort of formalities around that but one of the things that I'm really proud of of last year and also this year as we sort of move out of the depths of the pandemic is that we've still been able to bring these new works into the collection which is one of the um, can be one of the hardest things like financially logistically um, to do. It's been a good year for acquisitions. I was hoping probably that we'd talk mostly about um, acquisitions to our historic collections, but we also have a sort of extensive reference collection. And we're really lucky that we get academics and, and writers sort of donating their most recent works of criticism to that, of which we've had this year. But this year we've had a letter from Mary Russell Mitford, uh, another Hampshire writer who didn't ever meet Jane Austen in her lifetime, but very much ran in the same circles. And it's the sort of thing where... I easily imagine that they could have been in the same town at the same time and not Mm. just quite cross paths and their families did cross paths. So that's something I'd I'd like to talk about. And then um, we've also been bringing home a number of what we call, and we might have mentioned this on the podcast before, Lost Sheep. And those are works that uh, were listed in the 1818 catalogue of Godmersham Park, which was Edward Austen Knight's preferred home when Jane Austen was alive. And that's the library that we know she spent a lot of time in. I think I'm gonna be corrected here probably, but I think it was 10 months in total that it's been estimated that she spent time there. And famously in one letter says that we live in the library other than meals. Um, So those books are of particular interest to scholars that want to understand how Jane Austen's reading influenced her writing but they're also just sort of really exciting almost like relic objects for us that we can maybe hold the books Mm. that she and other members of the Knight family held in their hands and thanks to a generous private donor we've brought back a really exciting work from 
that catalogue because it's it's written by one of the women writers that we profile in the collection, which is um, Hester lynch Pulitzi. What does it mean to Chawton when we bring in all these new acquisitions that you've spoken about? What does it mean for the visitors or researchers at Chawton? It's a, re- it's a really good question because it is one of the core things that I think we can offer, uh, particularly visitors that know us and sort of keep coming back or researchers that use the library. Um, if I take it from the visitor perspective, it's that once we bring these works on site and we um, we do the sort of core curatorial work of analysing them in terms of, well, recording things like their size and their contents. And um, often with things like the Mary Russell Mitford letter, that might be getting a transcription of it because scripts can, hers is not too bad, but scripts can be pretty hard to read. And um, so once we've done this sort of conservation assessment, all these sort of stabilizing in our processes, it's formerly part of our collection, then we're able to say, okay, well, how do we display this for the public? What stories can we tell about it when we put it in, say, a display in the library? Or, or how does it tie into other programming that we're doing so it's in in the way I see objects they're not only interesting just as material things but they open up all of these other possibilities for things that we can talk about so with the Mary Russell Mitford letter the reason why we acquired it other than the fact that she is another woman writing local to us at the time who was very popular and influential and in a very different realm from Austin but it's actually previously unknown letter in which she talks about Jane Austen she's writing at the beginning to a friend and she says the equivalent of thank you so much for um, your generous gift of the complete works of Jane Austen this most favorite writer and this will sort of I guess lead on to research aspects with with Kim but that allows us to talk about the relationship between those two contemporaries that for a long time in from the Victoria, late Victorian times onward have been presented as as rivals in that Mary Russell Mitford has been presented as hating Jane Austen or um, being very snarky about her, maybe jealous towards her. And that's based on excerpts from other letters that we know exist. But what's great about this letter is that it enables us to say, well, let's look at all of the evidence we have of what Mary Russell Mitford said about Jane Austen. And you could take those those quotes that she did say where she um, is very disparaging about her as a young person, as being sort of a a husband hunter and then later in life as being a very sort of quiet, uh, skewering, sort of difficult personality. But we can also find goodness she loved to read her she talks about she talks about her her views on different novels she uses complete superlatives and when talking about say like reading Emma she's doing her own detective work trying to say hmm, who do we think this author of the anonymous pride and prejudice is um and then she gets given this complete set of of Jane Austen's novels and is delighted with it and just to finish up on on some of the display opportunities because of the date of this letter and because of the the publication history of Austen's novels which only really took off beyond the initial editions in the mid 19th century when Richard Bentley the publisher acquired all the copyrights and he issued Austen's novels as part of his standard novels set and they were much more affordable and they were produced a much greater number and that's one of the key times when Austen gets um her popularity rises and becomes sort of this Victorian interest property for 
for, for readers. And we actually have the exact full set of Jane Austen's novels published by Richard Bentley that Mary Russell Mitford um, is thanking being given. But our set was owned by the Knight family and actually was an acquisition a few years ago because it's got um, the Knight family book plates in it. So when we display it, we're able to say, look at how this the publication here, History of Jane Austen, looked directly at how it relates to how someone had access to their novels. Maybe it was a big deal that she suddenly had copies of all these novels. And it brings sort of a different avenue that we can talk about whilst also being much more vivid and I think exciting for visitors to see this is the letter and it's talking about these pretty much exact books, but these books were the ones owned by the Knight family. So sort of everything links together. So with something like that, that's the sort of considerations that we have of how it will benefit visitors to the house. But Kim, obviously, um, who is in charge of our academic programming, will have an interrelated, but sort of different angle on how it's, um, uh, how it's interesting. And I always find it, and it's good for us to early on is to sort of discuss subjects and be like, what, what what would they be useful for us in those terms, sort of each of us in our different disciplines? And of course, the, the, the academic research kind of feeds into the displays that we have. And I think it's, it's great that you mentioned the 1833 standard edition set. So Mitford says uh, this this edition is very, very beautiful. And I think the 1833 was the first illustrated edition of Austin in, in English. Anyway, there were French illustrations before that. So uh, one of the one of the really interesting kind of display opportunities is to show they have these beautiful frontispieces, but the characters are all in quite 19th century dress. So it's not sort of Regency. Um, so you can see how these texts are being kind of updated via their illustrations. So, yeah, absolutely. There's there's the kind of display possibilities. And then there are the research possibilities as well and I think one of those possibilities is about understanding and unpacking the networks that we find between these women writers so Emma's outlined really nicely the Mitford's kind of reaction to Austen calling her this favorite writer um, and I think that can kind of undo previous assumptions about what their relationship was like the Piozzi is another um, writer that Austin was familiar with. So I think she threatens to write in Piozzi's style um, in a letter to Cassandra in 1799, which, um, <laughs> which makes me laugh. And she was clearly familiar with, with Piozzi's works. And Piozzi is a fascinating figure who I think speaks really well to what we're trying to do at Chawton House to sort of share the legacies of women writers who you know, have traditionally been understudied, although Piozzi is somebody who's receiving much more kind of critical and scholarly attention at the moment. I know that um, Sophie Colombo, for example, has done some really fascinating work on Piozzi's name. Um, so you'll notice that it's Hester Lynch Thrail Piozzi um, because she goes through two different marriages. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that can be drawn out there with questions around naming of women writers. Again, you know, we've got a huge body of anonymous work in our collections and there's a, a big question mark over that. So that's another kind of avenue. I think as well, um, Piozzi's fantastic, her, her travel narrative, which is the one that we've um, had back into our collections. It's just a really interesting document. We looked at it in our Chawton House reading group a few months back, and the group were really struck by kind of um, how broad her knowledge is. So she's demonstrating knowledge of art, of architecture, of the different types of food that she encounters. So, so they're really interesting kind of documents about 18th and 19th century life. And again, you know, they'll feed into our... 2022 exhibition on travel writing which will be at the end of next year so this kind of research then sort of you know translates into the displays that we're having and I suppose the other thing to kind of mention 
from an academic point of view is, an, is another um, acquisition that we've had courtesy of Lucy Hay and Janine Barkas um, sort of set this up for us, which is a, uh, it's actually a first edition of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. But this was the copy that belonged to Catherine Metcalf, who was later married to Richard Chapman. And she produced a very early edition of Pride and Prejudice and was working on editions of Emma and Mansfield Park, but then the, the First World War got in the way. And Janine Barkas has done a lot of work to establish how important her early editions were for what then becomes the Chapman editions of Austin's work. So this is a really interesting little edition. It's, it's got loads of annotations in it. The frontispiece is missing. Um, and you can really trace the editorial process that Catherine Metcalf would have gone through and also the kind of collaboration that she was taking part in with her husband. So I think as well as being very interesting acquisitions in their own right these also can tell us a story about afterlives which I think Emma was gesturing towards you know we can find out a lot about editorial processes by looking at the material objects so yeah that's a really kind of exciting acquisition um, from the perspective of inviting kind of future research and scholarship and um, we do hope somebody will come and do that for us in the reading room going forward. In terms of the editing of that first edition that you could tell from the annotations what sort of things can you see? It was quite difficult to get hold of these first edition copies and so the copy that she's got is quite battered as I said it's missing the front of it and what she's actually done I think it's her handwriting but she's yeah. written in um, the 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 first the opening lines of it mm. um, and then often she's gone through and there are things like kind of commas added in so you can see where she's editing those early editions I think as well although I'm not sure about this that Metcalf was one of the first people to work with first editions of Austen's novels so Mansfield Park yeah. was um, initially published by I'm going to get this wrong, was initially published by Edgerton, I think, and then um, was moved over to uh, to John Murray later. And I think I think this is the Edgerton edition. Am I right? Yes, it is. Yeah. I think what Ginny Barkas has done really well is show how uh, R.W. Chapman's approach towards his novels as if they were classics, giving them that sort of rigour and editorial approach very much we see in her edition of Pride and Prejudice, which predates his by 10 years, but also in this copy of Mansfield Park. Um, we see she's crossing out spellings. Um, it's it's quite interventionist, which I found utterly fascinating because we tend to think of today of the sanctity of, of the first edition. And when we have later um, editions of works, there's a lot of as I understand it, accountability of saying why things have been changed and the different history of things, where she's coming in quite strong with crossings and, uh, and, and, and updatings. And it both shows us work that uh, she did, although it is hard to distinguish between the two hands sometimes within the volume, but then that it was this physical copy that became the proof copy for the Oxford edition. And um, as Kim said, it was really hard to get a hold of Austin's copies at the time she was looking for Pride and Prejudice. The Bodleian didn't have a copy of it. Um, so she managed to borrow these clean copies from various, uh, I think it was a, a book collector she met through Oxford, but she must have um, obviously couldn't write on those, but she must have then managed to find this sort of copy for Mansfield Park. As Kim said, it's missing various pages, but one avenue of research I would love someone to do is that um, the title page has the inscription of the Countess of Glasgow on it. And so it's fascinating to think anything from, you know, female book ownership. And then how did that come into um, into circulation? 
Yeah, so that so again, it's that question of um, the the life of the book as well as the life of the kind of contents of the book. And I suppose that brings us on quite nicely to talk about the the final acquisition dropped in by a descendant of the writer, um, the writer's Agnes Strickland, and it's a it's a collection of of poems that she wrote called Demetrius. And we've we've got a couple of other works by her in our collections, and it's just one of lots and lots of examples of these women writers who we don't haven't heard of today um but who have the most fascinating live lives so um but this collection of poems in particular is inscribed to her great niece um who actually lived in in canada at the time and the interesting thing about the book itself is that the pages have not been cut so it was <laughs> given to her great niece as a gift and her great niece probably never read it yeah it's it's funny because She's being given, I think it's 1874, it's inscribed, and Demetrius was published in 1833. And um, yeah, this great niece is coming over and meeting her, her, you know, distinguished author, great aunt, who dies a few years later. And the great aunt thinks, ah, what what she really needs, just as she's about to go and get married, is a copy of my my poetry from 40 years ago um, that hasn't been opened or cut. And then we see, well... It's just it's it for me. It's just amusing to think uh, what the decision making behind that was, and obviously, didn't end up having its pages opened by the recipient. Oh. And that's what makes it all the more fascinating. It, but that's the thing; it was never opened, but it also has been passed down. Exactly. Yeah. So it's this question about value um, and who values what, which items, which I think is really interesting. Totally. And I think often when we have um, works that have gone down through the family, which is also the same for the, the Chapman edition of, of Mansfield Park, um, the family get to a certain point. And even if, say, they haven't engaged with that copy themselves because they feel the weight and the, the interest of it as illuminating the authors and their families. That's often why they get in touch with us because they want it to go somewhere where it can be recognized for what it is. And importantly, where it can just be cared for in the right conditions. And so it's wonderful when we're able to both be the place that can care for it, but also can provide access because there's nothing more tantalizing than knowing that there are all of these books in family collections that are annoyingly not listed on library <laughs> aggregate websites. And so no one's able to study them unless they somehow come to light. Yeah. Have you had to adopt many items whilst being at Chawton House from families that don't know what they are or don't know its significance? And um, we've had we've had a couple. So often people do know its significance. And that's why they get in touch with us. Last year, there was um, a local man, Tony Souter, who came across a housekeeper's recipe book in an old house that his parents had lived in. It has some intrinsic value, but but not huge. But its social history value is fascinating. It's, it's a working notebook uh, from the 18th century. And there's some information about the household it came in. But we have a lot of manuscript recipe books in our collection, but often have had a more, I guess, editorial thought behind how they've been compiled they're like the clean copy whereas this is very much a working copy of it's scrubby and it's uh it goes from everywhere so um I guess he he wasn't sure if it would be of interest to anyone but because we're interested in illuminating the lives of women at the time when our women writers were writing that's sort of an angle we can take it was of interest to us I guess a different version is we sometimes auction you see things that um are listed as something and then we get them or we look at them and we say oh this is so much more interesting than than it than it was listed at and actually there was an there was an addition to the night collection this year which was a copy of the the book that the knight family in 1870s wrote 
about the history of Chawton House and its owners. So it was sort of a, a vanity project in that respect and quite a small press. But there was a copy that had the, the family book plate in it and Richard Knight uh, decided to acquire that for the Knight Collection. But when I went to go and pick it up, I saw that it must have been, because we already have copies of that in the collection, ours and the Knight. It must have been an important copy because it's it's bound in leather, whereas all of the others are bound in cloth. And it has handwritten at the end sort of an addendum um, after Montague Knight, who was one of the authors, after he's died. And he did so much to promote the history of Chawton House. I think probably spoken about him before on, on the podcast. Um, but it's a handwritten addendum that um, his his co-writer says that his wife asked him to do, basically saying, here are all the things that Montague did in his life on the house that aren't covered in the in the breadth of this book. And we actually, through the sleuthing of, of Martin Caddick, our sort of house historian, he's, he's found that that's not a unique piece of writing. It's recorded elsewhere, but it does seem to be that this is the source piece of writing and it is written in, in manuscript form. And there was no evidence that it was going to be sort of that sort of work when, when we acquired it at auction. So, yeah, sometimes people turn out with something exciting and sometimes you manage to buy something that was just a little bit better than you thought. <laughs> Amazing. So I guess it must take time to go through and research everything that you do get into Chawton. Sort of why Gloss is so amazing, the Godmersham Lost Sheep Society, because they do, they scour um, smaller libraries and catalogues to look for things that did previously um, belong in the Godmersham collection. They look for book plates in particular. But again, you know, as with the auctions, it's not always a given that things are going to be listed correctly. So um, mm. yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing work. And you also wanted to talk today about the Man Up Creative Writing Competition whilst we're talking about some of the writings. Can you tell us more about this? Yes, absolutely. So this was a, a competition that we ran in the summer and it was to get young writers involved with what we were doing in the Man Up exhibition and also to kind of encourage um, encourage them to engage with what we've got in the collections and some of the stories that we were telling. So I'm sure you probably have spoken to Cleo um, before about um, curating the Man Up exhibition mm. um, which was really told the story of women who stepped into male roles either through directly through kind of cross-dressing or indirectly through kind of um, trespassing into male terrains I suppose typically male terrains but the call for the creative writing competition went out and there were four categories so two poetry categories um, one for 15 to 17 year olds one for 18 to 25 year olds and then two short story categories within the same age ranges and we sent it out initially thinking it would be a very small competition Competition. we might get a few entries um, from from the local area and what we ended up getting were uh, loads and loads of entries from all over the world so oh, yeah. we had entries from Europe um, but also from uh, India from Nigeria from Indonesia um, from Kazakhstan and um, for those of you who are interested in in seeing the kind of reach of this we've just published a blog on the website about how it's influenced some teachers uh, in Kazakhstan who wrote in to um, to tell us what they've been doing with the Man Up um, exhibition. Wow. So um, we were really just delighted with the results of it. And uh, the winners, we published them in the latest edition of The Female Spectator. So um, we had Kayla Chan, who won the poetry competition for the younger age range, and she's just 15 um, and she comes from China. Then Elora Sutton won the older poetry competition. Christina Stavridis um, from Cyprus won the uh, younger short story competition. And Catherine Bennett, who's UK based, won the, the older one. So if you do want to read those, you can see them in the latest edition 
of the female spectator. And the final thing to say about that is that we have a poetry section in the Female Spectator, which is our magazine, which comes out three times a year. And poetry sections in kind of 18th and 19th century magazines often kind of had contributions in them from readers themselves. And so there are these kind of conversations and responses that set up in the in the poetry pages of these magazines. And sometimes they're kind of comedic, sometimes they're um, flirtatious. Um, there was one example from the ladies' magazine that actually ended in a marriage, um, which I always think is quite... <laughs> Quite funny. Um, some of them are kind of commiseration poems. So there are a lot of poems to deceased pets, um, which, again, can sort of inadvertently be comic um, today to modern <laughs> readers. Um, and some challenges as well. But I think what we're trying to do is kind of replicate this. So if you're listening and you are uh, a kind of budding poet, then do please um, send in poems and responses. I think it'd be really good to have a kind of section of the magazine that's dedicated to people who are producing that kind of work. How can people send in their own writings? Then? Um, if you send them in um, to me, it's kim.simpson at chortonhouse.org and then they will go into the following issue amazing that sounds really cool I can't believe it went worldwide as well that competition yeah yeah it was good there's actually um there's a, a bit of stuff on the website including uh, a map of all the countries that, that contributed and did you have to read every single one of them yes <laughs> yeah yeah but it was a real pleasure the, the quality yeah. of them was so incredibly high and I think people had engaged really wonderfully with the stories of of these women I think the, the winning poetry entries both engaged directly with yeah with stories and actually used quotations um, from some of these women's accounts so I think they're, they're doing really interesting things with the narratives of these kind of extraordinary extraordinary lives so we'll, we'll be running a, a similar competition next year I think again based on some element of our collection but we've yet to um, to put that together exciting yeah. so much going on well thank you so much Kim Simpson and Emma Yandel for your time to tell us about those exhibitions and the man up creative writing competition thanks so much Lizzie it's been really fun that's all for now on the Chawton House podcast, with special thanks to Dr Kim Simpson and Emma Yandel. You can come and see the acquisitions during your next visit to Chawton House. Just head on over to the website or follow Chawton House on social media to keep updated on all the events we have to offer. Keep an ear out for more episodes about the house very soon, and this music is Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square, found on ccmixter.org. <laughs>